Hello and welcome to 20 to 1, a brand new podcast that explores the lives of accomplished individuals with me, Josiah Senu, your host. In each episode, I aim to uncover the tips, tricks and insights that have made my guests pioneers in their field, all in 20 questions. So now it's time to welcome Lord Panic. It's said about Lord Panic that there's been no greater public law advocate in the last 40 years. Indeed, when I interviewed Lady Hale earlier in January this year, she described Lord Panic as one of the most impressive appellate advocates of his generation. Quite plainly, he's an indisputable superstar of the bar. And that's why it gives me no greater pleasure to be sitting with him in Blackstone Chambers today to conduct this interview. Lord Panic, thank you for joining me on the podcast. No, it's a great pleasure, Josiah. Really nice to be here. I'm not sure I can live up to that billing, but I'll do my best. I was recently chatting with Bobby Skinstad, a former South Africa rugby captain and World Cup champion, about what high performance means and how he sustained that level of performance throughout his career. And I suppose after observing the success of your career so far, it really got me thinking, what does high performance mean to you? Well, high performance means that you've done all the necessary preparation, which is essential if you're going to argue a case. There's no point not being in command of all the material. There's a famous case in the United States Federal Court of Appeals where the judge says to the counsel, why haven't you dealt with the following Supreme Court judgment? And the counsel replies, well, I'm a very busy man. I don't really have time to read a lot of cases. <laughs> so you need to avoid that. You've got to do your preparation, whether it's advocacy, whether it's um, appearing in a sporting context. And you also need to be focused on the day. You need to put aside all other matters, leave aside problems at home, your bad leg, the fact that um, the uh, television doesn't work at home or whatever, and focus on the case in hand. I and mean, that's your, your task for that day. I think it's also important to emphasise that nobody, however hard they work, however much experience they have, can achieve high performance on every occasion. You're always going to make mistakes. And if you start advocacy thinking that you are always going to be successful and you're always going to put every possible point, that you are inevitably going to be disappointed. There's a famous story about Justice Jackson of the United States Supreme Court, who said that he always had three arguments in every case. The first was the argument that he prepared in advance, which was thorough and detailed. The second was the argument that he actually presented to the courts, which inevitably under the pressure of court procedure was disjointed and left out a number of points, was disappointing inevitably. And the third argument, he said, was the one he thought of in his bed at night after he'd done the case. And that argument involved a brilliant point that would have resolved the case in his favour if only he had argued it. So, um, <laughs> you know, high performance is an aspiration, but it isn't, I'm afraid, a reality, as um, I'm sure any sporting genius would tell you, apart, of course, from Ronaldo, but apart from him, <laughs> uh, nobody can maintain 
high performance over decades. But it's quite interesting because I think many would say that you have. And I, I would be interested to understand how you've navigated those moments where you may have felt at your peak, but then there's also been a trough and, and how you sort of maintain the ticking over. Well, you're speaking to someone who once got judgment in the appellate committee of the um, House of Lords in three different cases that I'd argued over previous months, and I lost them all. You know, I lost four <laughs> cases on the on the same day. Um, there are peaks, there are troughs. My first case, I was the second junior in the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, and the issue was whether our client, who had been convicted of um, drug trafficking in Singapore, he'd been sentenced to the mandatory death penalty. And the issue in London in the Privy Council was whether this was unconstitutional, mandatory death penalty. And I was the second junior to Anthony Lester, uh, QC, who argued the case. We lost. My first client was hanged. And uh, you can only improve after that. So <laughs> that was a low. There have been highs, of course, but, you know, you, you lose cases. And you lose cases because you don't choose your cases. The cases come to you. Some of them are winnable. Some of them, nobody, Demosthenes couldn't win some of the cases. Others, you might win, you might lose, depending on a whole variety of factors. So you can't proceed on the basis that, if I don't succeed, it's a failure. And there have been highs, there have been lows, as there are through anybody's career. That's interesting. And I guess what you said earlier got me thinking a little bit, because you, you mentioned that preparation is key to being an excellent advocate. So how much would you say that talent is a factor into being an, an excellent advocate? Well, you've got to do the preparation, but if you don't know how to present a case, then it's not going to be presented very effectively. And I think what some advocates don't realise is that the object of the exercise is persuasion. It's not to sound off, to give a lecture to the judge. Judges are busy people. They need help. They welcome help. And your task is to try to help them, of course, pushing them, sometimes very firmly, in the direction of your client's interests. You know, This is not an academic exercise. Advocacy is not designed to ensure that you put a balanced view. There are obviously constraints on you. You mustn't mislead the court. You've got to draw the attention of the court to all relevant authorities. But you are arguing one side of the case. And there are ways of doing that that uh, make it more likely you're going to succeed. For example, there's no point in advocacy ignoring the uh, case against you, ignoring the strong points on the other side. You have to address them. You have to confront them. There's no point droning on in a court. You have to make your points succinctly in the hope that the judge will be persuaded. So it's not just preparation. There, there are techniques, and there's a whole variety of techniques which people use, some more effectively than, than others. A lot depends on personality. There are one or two advocates, I've not met many in my career, who can laugh a case out of court. I certainly can't do that. But some people have the ability to ridicule and properly ridicule the excesses of the other side's case. So there's a variety of techniques. It's not just preparation. There is 
skill involved, or perhaps I should say more accurately, experience linked to skill. But it, it's not, you know, it's not rocket science that we're dealing with here. <laughs> this is not um, <laughs> dealing with splitting the atom. It's a, a much lower level of human endeavour, but nonetheless very important. You know, I mean, the rule of law depends upon effective advocacy on both sides. And how would you describe yourself as an advocate? Um, I would describe myself as thorough, as someone who seeks to identify what the case is really about, because many of my cases involve enormous bundles of authorities and vast lever arch files of documents, most of which are not really central, if central at all, to the issues that are in dispute between the parties and which the court is going to resolve. So you say, what I try to do is to identify what really matters. And that does require preparation. It requires a knowledge of the case. And then I focus on that in my submissions. I seek to draw the attention of the court to what is core in the dispute between the parties. So that's one thing that I focus on. The other thing I think is very important is to recollect that advocacy is not just about talking. Plainly, talking is very important to advocacy, but it's also about listening. You have to listen to what the other side are saying in court, sometimes what they're not saying. You have to listen to the judge. You have to listen to what he or she is interested in, what they're asking about, what they're not asking about. And you have to try to respond, to deal with all of that. So those are the matters that I try to focus on. That's fascinating. And hearing about the way you prepare and the way you think um, certainly shows how much performance out of yourself you've managed to get out of a number of years. But I guess I'm conscious, having read a little about you, that you took an interest in law at a relatively early age. Um, you used to go and watch cases the Old Bailey, for example. So how did your interest in law begin? Yeah, you make it sound rather sad, really. <laughs> uh, you know, at the age of four, instead of playing with my soldiers or with my cars, I was at the old bay. Now, I think when I was about 15, 16, like many people, I started to think, well, what am I going to do? And I enjoyed debating at school. And I thought, well, law might be quite an interesting thing to do when I'm older. And um, I went to the Old Bailey, not every week, I went a few times, (laughs) and um, it was great theatre. This was wonderful to see people cross-examining witnesses, arguing points of law, the uh, defendant in the dock, because it was the Old Bailey, it was often, not always, but often very grave crimes of which they were accused. So yes, I did that, and uh, that uh, enthused me uh, for the law, so I did more debating. And uh, like many people, I had the difficult decision, should I study law at university or should I do something else? And uh, I did read law at university. I don't myself think it much matters whether you read law or you don't. You can be a very successful barrister, solicitor, either way. But yes, I did have an interest from quite an early age. And if you had to go back in time, would you still have studied law at university? I think probably not, because if you're going to spend the whole of your life practicing law, it's quite a good idea 
to do something else for the three years or four years that you're at university. But it's a very personal decision. When people ask me, because sometimes people ask me, they say, well, you know, should I read law? And my advice to them always is do what you're interested in. If you have an interest in law and you want to do law, then don't be deflected from doing so. But don't feel you have to do law if you are thinking of a legal career. I think that's going to be helpful advice for lots of people who are who are listening. But I'm conscious that it sounds like you had a very independent approach to your fascination and interest to the law. But did your family play a role in why you decided to take that path? Not really. I mean, my family were very supportive. I had no legal background whatsoever. My father ran a shoe shop in Romford Market. My mother worked in the secretarial department of a girls' school, and I had a very privileged upbringing, by which I mean not wealth, but love, affection, support. And my parents just wanted me to be happy and to do things that would do well in whatever I did. So they certainly supported me, but I had no legal background at all. So I went to university. I I had a, a wonderful law tutor, the late Roy Stewart at uh, Hartford College, Oxford, who was one of the few law tutors, even then, I think it's more so now, who did very little original research of his own, but focused on the welfare of his students, devoted himself. So that, you know, I was very fortunate there. And then I was fortunate to win a fellowship at All Souls by competition. And that was really my entrance to the bar, because in those days, happily, much has changed. In those days, you obtained pupillage essentially by who you knew. And in All Souls, I met uh, a slightly older law fellow, Michael Hart, who became a high court judge, sadly died tragically young. And he said, come and um, be my pupil. So I did. And although... I had great affection for him. I had no affection for his work whatsoever because his work was in the (laughs) Chancery Division. And his work primarily involved drafting variations of trusts. I found that terribly, terribly boring. I told this to another fellow of All Souls, Max Beloff, and he said, well, why don't you go and be the pupil of my son, Michael Beloff? And uh, that's what I did. And Michael Beloff was the rising star of public law. This was a new emerging area of law. We're talking 1979, 1980. He was the go-to guy for the new field of judicial review. And he did discrimination law, or rather anti-discrimination law. He did sports law, did everything. And this was really exciting. You know, this was law at the cutting edge raised issues of uh, politics, morality, really interesting stuff. So I enjoyed that. I was very fortunate. I was in the right place at the right time. That's really interesting, actually, because I guess you were able to not only just follow your passion, but follow your contribution. And that makes a material impact for a lot of people. And in many ways, your your upbringing and the love and affection you had enabled you to do so. So I guess on on a more philosophical question, do you think that the chances that you get at an early age, the environment that you're created in, let's say, affects the opportunities and the development that you have later on in your adult life. 
I'm not sure I do philosophy, Jez. I mean, <laughs> I'm not sure I can answer that, that question adequately. I mean, so much in your life depends on your upbringing. Obviously, that molds you, it develops you, but you also need opportunities. And opportunities, particularly at the bar, often come by good fortune. You know, you can be an extremely promising young lawyer and you never get the opportunities. You're not in, in and I'm in, not in the right place. And I'm very conscious of that. And that's why I think it's so important that the bar has over the last 40 years since I started made considerable efforts to promote diversity, to promote fairness so that everybody has the opportunity to make their contribution according to their efforts, according to their their merits. We haven't succeeded, you know, in every respect, far from it in that, but we've made real progress over 40 years. And that's why I'm, I, like many other barristers, are so concerned by the lack of funding from the government for legal services and the adverse effect that we fear this will have on the ability of people from non-privileged backgrounds to come into the law and remain in the law and succeed in the law. And that's so important, not just for them, it's so important for the reputation of the legal system because the young lawyers of today, people like you, Josiah, are the potential Court of Appeal, Supreme Court judges of you know, the next 20, 30, 40 years. That's what's so important an issue that I'm also deeply passionate about, you know, something that you, you sort of said is that when you started out, it was important to know people. Undoubtedly, that has changed significantly over the last number of years with more being done to find candidates from, you know, more diverse backgrounds, but who still meet a certain level of aptitude. But what more do you think can be done in the current state that we face today to make the bar more accessible to the people that you say it needs to attract? Well, I think the bar needs to listen to what people at the receiving end are saying is required. And I think it's for people in your generation to come forward with detailed proposals, which the bar needs to listen to in order to promote diversity and equality. I think what one can say is that there is now more than ever a commitment amongst the senior levels of the bar to do something about this. The statistics are still disappointing, certainly in relation to um, the higher levels of the judiciary. And we can only hope that further improvement takes place speedily. If it doesn't, then I fear that confidence in the legal system will decline very, very substantially. Earlier on this podcast series, we put to Lady Hale the question as to whether or not she thought that having a blind CV recruitment process or a contextual recruitment process would be adequate or would help pupillage applicants, for example, to have a, a fairer and fighting chance. Do you have a view on this or on a particular type of system? Or do you think that it's actually just an, a natural evolution and we'll sort of figure it out as, as we get along? Well, I'm not sufficiently familiar with all the details to know whether there is evidence that suggests that that would make an important difference to the results. I think certainly a trial of such a system in some sets of chambers 
would be a very good idea. And if the results are positive, then that can be rolled out more generally. But the objective, as you rightly said, is to ensure greater diversity, to ensure greater fairness, and also to ensure, and I think the two are totally compatible, to ensure that there's no lowering of standards. And the reality is that the legal system has lost over generations the contributions of people of real potential who never got the chance. I wonder if you've had moments where you've felt that you're actually an imposter. And I guess there's this phrase, imposter syndrome, that goes around quite a bit. Have you ever felt like you've had imposter syndrome? You would find it difficult to identify people who have succeeded at the bar who do not doubt their own abilities, their own talents. Almost everybody I know, when they go into court, are concerned, terrified, it's too strong a word, but it never leaves you the worry that you're about to stand up in a court before a judge or judges or magistrates who may not be at all sympathetic to you or to your client, sometimes with justification. And you've got to present a case. I mean, that's a scary thing to do. Public speaking is of its very nature scary. And for most people, that never leaves you. So I think any aspiring barrister, any young barrister, should not think, because it's not true, that those who have succeeded, who are at the top level of the profession, do not suffer from the same concerns as they do. What you do with experience is you learn to deal with it. You recognise that this is an inevitable part of the work that you do. And indeed, it does have a positive element because if you weren't um, concerned about the reception you're going to receive, if you weren't worried about how it's going to go, then you would be overconfident, you would be complacent, and your performance would be likely to be far less effective. So it gets the adrenaline going, and that's good for appearing in court. But it's very important that that young barristers do not think that those who succeed, who have succeeded, who they know about, are immune from the same concerns that they have. It's a difficult thing. It's a difficult profession, but enormously satisfying. That's why we do it. When's the last time you had adrenaline coursing through your veins? When well, you the last speaking? time I appeared in court. I mean, <laughs> you know, it, 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 it never leaves. Some cases are more troubling the night before than others. It all depends. Depends on which court. Depends on who's watching. I mean, by far the most troubling case in this sense, you know, the most stressful case was the second Gina Miller case involving the decision by Boris Johnson to advise Her Majesty to prorogue Parliament. And that was particularly stressful, not because the issues were more difficult legally than any other case, but because there were so many people watching. You know, you once you start the case, you forget about all that. You just concentrate on the then 11 judges in front of you. But the night before, you're well aware from... Uh, all the reporting, that there are millions of people around the world who are watching. But all, all cases are stressful. 
it's funny that you mentioned the Miller case because it was on my list of questions okay. to, to ask you. So that's a, an excellent segue into it. Well, um, as I said, advocacy <laughs> sometimes depends on on knowing what is interests the judge and uh, dealing with the case, dealing with the points against you before they're raised. Indeed, and you clearly are a natural at it. But I guess maybe a question that is of interest to me is that you won both the Miller cases. And indeed, I would agree with you that the legal issues were fairly straightforward from what the correct answer should have been. But how much do you think winning was down to your advocacy? Oh, I don't think it's down to my advocacy. I pointed the court in a certain direction But in both of these cases, the court was well aware of what the issue was. The judges, inevitably, because they'd read the lower court judgments, they thought about the case, would have had a very strong opinion in advance. So I I don't claim the credit. I mean, the issue in both cases, as we agree, was really quite simple. The issue was whether or not Parliament is sovereign. And that is a basic principle of our constitutional system. The first case concerned whether the referendum result was binding in some legal sense when Parliament had not said so. And um, the court, by a majority of eight to three, said that, uh, no, Parliament is sovereign. You have to have an act of Parliament to overturn the European Communities Act. And the second one, again, sovereignty of Parliament. It can't be right. The Prime Minister can uh, advise Her Majesty to prorogue uh, Parliament in order to prevent parliamentary supervision at a very important stage of the Brexit process. But I don't claim... I mean, I I think very often in cases, when, when you win them, what you've achieved is that you've avoided saying foolish things that deflect the court from what you hope to achieve. And you've avoided going off on a tangent by adopting, pursuing points that are really not central to the issue. I think it's very occasional, very occasional, that a case is won by advocacy. I've seen cases lost by advocacy, but that's another matter. That's incredibly interesting, actually, because I would have thought that winning or losing is down to whether or not the advocate presents an excellent case or not. But actually, your thoughts are more, it's the law and the the issues and the facts that apply. And just the determination of that, which happens before even a barrister steps out in front of the judge to deliver his or her case. Yeah, I mean, there are very rare cases where the court, particularly at a high level, the Supreme Court has not for itself identified an issue or they're not aware of an authority or some argument. But in my experience, that's very rare. I think the much more common is that the task of the advocate is to keep the process on the rails, to make sure that if your case is a strong one, that the argument proceeds in the right direction. It doesn't get diverted. You don't say or do anything that causes the carriage to overturn. That's the reality. And if your case is a losing case, it's pretty rare that great advocacy is going to achieve a result. I think it's rather different in an area I don't practice in, which is criminal law, jury trials. I mean, I think in that context, advocacy may well make a difference to achieving a result for a defendant. 
but that's not my field of expertise. And when you realise that there is a case where the facts are not on your side, the issue is not on your side, the judge may not even be on your side as you begin to stand in the hearing and hear the arguments. How do you react? What do you do in that situation? Well, there's an old adage that if the facts are against you, you argue the law. And if the law's against you, you argue the facts. And if the law and the facts are against you, you bang on the table. You just create <laughs> a diversion. Um, that's not what I try to do. I mean, I think the role of the advocate is to do his or her best. It is to make the points that can be made in what looks like a losing case. And there are always points to be made, you know, particularly if you're dealing with appellate advocacy, which is what I do most of the time. There are always points to be made, and the judge makes the decision. You put the arguments as best you are able, having made sure that if you do think this is a losing case, you give that advice to the client. But in my experience, a surprising proportion of clients adopts the view that even though they are advised that they are going to lose, for various reasons, they like to pursue the matter. It's a matter of principle. I've heard those words many, many times. And I then explain to my clients, well, you know, it's up to you. I don't think you're going to win. There are arguments I can make. And often they say, well, I wish to pursue it. And that's their judgment. Your task as the advocate is not to stand in the way of the litigant who insists that they wish to have their day or days in court. Sometimes the advice you've given turns out to be wrong and you have a wonderful victory. Sometimes you've advised the client they're going to win and they lose, sometimes badly. But that's the nature of the exercise. And of course, clients are not best able to identify the realities. I remember once I had a client in the Privy Council, and after the hearing, when it was perfectly obvious the court was completely against his case, he said to me, that was really fantastic. I'm so pleased because the judges only wanted to talk to you. They weren't interested in the council <laughs> on the other side. They didn't ask him any questions. They didn't even want to hear from him. <laughs> I guess you've had a period of time now where for the last 40 years you've been one of the best advocates in public law. Will you continue to be a barrister or do you think that there's life yet ahead of you perhaps sitting in the Court of Appeal or the Supreme Court one day? No, I mean, I, I made a decision probably about 10, 15 years ago that a judicial career was not for me. I don't have the patience I really don't. And I enjoy advocacy. I, I enjoy the uh, experience of arguing cases, dealing with clients, traveling for cases abroad. You know, before the pandemic, I would frequently go to Hong Kong, Caribbean, other jurisdictions. I enjoy all that. And I still enjoy it, or I wouldn't do it. There will come a point where my friends in chambers and elsewhere will take me aside and they will say to me, David, I think probably you might wish to stop <laughs> and um, I will then stop. But at the moment, you know, if I, my health continues and I continue to get interesting cases, I, I'm, I'm going to 
carry on. There comes a point where you really do need to stop. I can remember 20, 30 years ago, I would appear against, for the um, the Home Office in immigration cases, I'd appear against barristers who were well into their 80s acting for applicants. I think there comes a point where where you do stop. And I've been very fortunate because I have my appointment to the House of Lords. So that takes up some of my time. And it's very nice to be able to say what I think. Whereas when I'm appearing for people, I say what they think, you know, I present their case. It's not my views. I act for anybody. I, you know, I act for people, whether I like them, admire them, or I find them objectionable or, or reprehensible. That's what the bar is about. And I think that's absolutely vital and fundamental. And I enjoy that, but I don't want to be a judge. And I guess that's as a final thought. I understand that your time is incredibly precious. What final words or, I guess, words of encouragement would you have for those who may look at you and say, I would like to be like Lord Panic one day? Oh my goodness, what a responsibility. What I would say to aspiring young barristers and young barristers is that the job that you do or hoping to do is of enormous importance. It's absolutely fundamental to the rule of law that cases are argued on each side by independent advocates who are not associated with the client. They act for any client, whoever they may be, and they put their case. And the rule of law can only continue, can only be preserved if there are people who are able and willing to do that job. So I encourage young people to pursue a career at the bar. I say to them, there are many stresses, strains, problems, which I'm well aware of that being a barrister involves. There are great concerns about funding. But if you pursue this career, you will have enormous enjoyment and satisfaction from it. And that seems to me to be rather an important thing as well. And what an excellent note to end on. Thank you very much for your time, Lord Pan. Thank you, Jezza. I've enjoyed it very much speaking to you. Thank you. And that was 20 to 1. For more insights from this episode and others, make sure to subscribe to the monthly newsletter at 20 toonecom And if you like this podcast, make sure to rate it on Spotify. With that, there's nothing left to do than to say thank you, goodbye, and see you soon.